Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lane Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. It is really hard to believe, but we recently reached episode number 200 of this podcast. I've heard from some of you who have listened to every single episode, which just blows me away. I am so honored to be part of your podcast library. This has been a really fun journey so far. I've had a great time and I've learned so much from all of my incredible guests. It's a privilege to be able to speak with people every week who have such amazingly diverse careers. Yes, I've interviewed a lot of sex researchers and therapists, but I've also spoken with a Hollywood intimacy coordinator, someone who makes penile prosthetics for nude scenes in the movies, porn directors, criminologists, dominatrixes, and so much more. It's all so, so fascinating. This show means so much to me, both personally and professionally. Personally, as I've said before, it was a lifeline during the pandemic because that's when I really started recording regularly. But professionally, it has been so cool to meet all of these wonderful people and also to have this show exist as an educational tool. I've heard from dozens of college professors who assign episodes of this show in their courses and make assignments out of them. I even have one colleague who put together a whole resource guide for how to use this podcast as a companion teaching resource alongside my textbook, The Psychology of Human Sexuality. That resource will be available both from the publisher and on my website. It's actually already up on the website, so I'll be sure to include a link to it in the show notes in case you're interested in taking a peek. Sidebar, I've been working on updating my textbook for the last two years. It's always a bear to revise a textbook because there is so much new research and new statistics to incorporate, and sometimes our conclusions about things have changed considerably as a result. The third edition will be out later this year, and I can't wait for it to be released. The book is written in the same style of my blog, so it's not your typical textbook. It's an easy and fun read, and many students have told me that it's the only college textbook they've ever read cover to cover, which I think is the biggest compliment you can get as an author. At any rate, thank you so much for coming on this podcast journey with me, and thank you for everything you do to support the show, whether that's sharing episodes on social media, patronizing the show's sponsors, or being one of my paid subscribers on Apple. I love doing this show, but it's so much work to put together. It really does take a village, so I couldn't do it without my amazing team, our sponsors, and our paid subscribers. So thank you. I truly mean it. So how do you celebrate 200 episodes of a sex show? Well, I decided to put together a clip show of some of the most fascinating facts about sex we've discussed to date. One of my co-managing editors at Sex and Psychology, Olivia Adams, help me to narrow down some of the segments that are well worth revisiting. So we're going to talk about a lot of fascinating stuff today, including everything from erotic self-focus, which is basically about how you see yourself in your sexual fantasies and the degree to which you turn yourself on. We're also going to talk about changes in the modern mating market, the rise in female infidelity and how women feel about their affairs, and also why single people tend to be happier when they're older compared to younger. This is going to be a really fun show. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Are you passionate about building a career in sexuality? Look no further than the Sexual Health Alliance. With Shaw, you'll connect with world-class experts and join an engaged community of sexuality professionals from all around the world. 
Whether you're just beginning your journey or are in the process of building advanced skills, Shaw's comprehensive certifications, engaging events, and self-paced online training will move you beyond the basics and set you up to be a rising star in the field. Visit SexualHealthAlliance.com and start building the sexuality career of your dreams today. Looking to broaden your sexual horizons? Check out Cheeks, a subscription-based sexual wellness platform offering a safe space for both entertainment and education. You'll find sex tutorials and live workshops in addition to erotic films and audio stories, as well as a taboo-breaking magazine. If you're on the hunt for ethically sourced content that celebrates diversity in all forms, Cheeks has you covered. With my exclusive discount code, Laymiller, my last name, you can try Cheeks for free for seven days when you select the annual subscription option. You can cancel at no cost or switch to the monthly plan at any time during the trial period. The monthly subscription is $14.90 per month, while the yearly subscription is $9.90 per month. Watch, listen, and learn with stimulating erotic content and educational resources. What are you waiting for? Check the show notes for the link or head over to getcheeks.com to start your free trial. That's G-E-T-C-H-E-E-X.com, discount code LAYMILLER, L-E-H, Miller. All right, let's talk fascinating facts about sex. We're going to start back in episode 126, where my guest was Dr. Marta Miena. We had this amazing conversation about women's sexual desire, and one of the topics we discussed was something called erotic self-focus, which is basically the degree to which you turn yourself on. So, for example, would you find it really arousing to look at yourself in the mirror while you were having sex? This isn't a narcissistic thing. Rather, it reflects having a healthy relationship with your own body and sexuality. Let's listen in. Now, since we're on the subject of wanting to be wanted, you know, this is something that I've seen a lot in my research on sexual fantasies, and it's one of the bigger gender differences. You know, certainly wanting to be wanted is something that a lot of men experience as well. And even if they don't directly come out and say it, I can read between the lines when they describe their fantasies, you know, such as I have a lot of heterosexual men in my studies who will describe their threesome fantasy with two other women where he's the center of attention and is sexually irresistible. I mean, fundamentally, that fantasy is about wanting to be wanted. But a key way that men's and women's fantasies differ is in their erotic self-focus. And in their fantasies, women are much more likely than men to appear as the object of desire. And the identity of their partner sometimes doesn't matter at all. So, for example, women, regardless of sexual orientation, in my research, I see they're much more likely than men to report having fantasized about a vague, faceless person. So sometimes women are so central to their own fantasies that it's not even clear in the fantasy who it is that they're having sex with. (laughs) So what have you found with respect to self-focus being a core part of sexual fantasy and desire for women? Well, I think sexual fantasy is only part of that story. I've still got a lot of data on the table that I haven't gotten out there to the world. But let me tell you how how I came to this topic of erotic self-focus in women. One of the things that I realized in my clinical work dealing with women with low desire, most of whom were in perfectly reasonable relationships with men they felt reasonably attracted to, was that I had to work on their sexual relationship with themselves. I started to realize clinically that my success in upping their desire was 
much higher when I worked on them and their sexual relationship to themselves. I'll tell you a funny story. So a few years ago, before I started my research on erotic self-focus, I came up with this question that I thought might be important, although it sounds silly. And I asked all my friends and acquaintances this question. I said, would you sleep with yourself? And all I wanted was a yes or a no. Just would you sleep with yourself? Would you have sex with yourself, essentially? And there was an interesting anecdotal gender difference that I found. Many of the men said, oh, I don't know. What do you mean by that? You know, the women knew exactly what I meant by that and either said yes or no, but mostly said yes. And so when my grad student, Evan Fertel, and I were having these discussions, I, that's where we said, let's try to get at this erotic self-focus. I don't know if you recall a while back, the very controversial theory of autogynephilia in relation to trans women. Uh, well, Charles Moser wanted to show that this concept of autogynephilia, which is getting turned on by yourself as a woman, the concept of yourself as a woman, was in fact maybe something that cisgender heterosexual women also experience. And he did, it was a very small study and found support for cisgender heterosexual women reporting that they they were turned on when they put lotion on themselves or when they were grooming for in advance of a date. And so we decided to really delve into that question, not just in terms of fantasy, but in terms of how much you turn yourself on over and above. And I'm not talking about masturbation. Like a simple question, if you are having sex with your partner in front of a mirror, who do you think you're looking most at? That's an example of, you know, just a question. So we came up with a list of questions that we thought reasonably tapped into the extent to which your arousal has to do with how you feel about yourself and your own sexiness. And what we found, we did two studies, the master's one that women rated much higher on erotic self-focus than men did. Again, I really want to stress cisgender heterosexual women. But we also wanted to see if our theory made sense to people. So we had like a construct endorsement question where I would say this to men and to women. So more so than heterosexual men, heterosexual women derive sexual arousal from feeling that they are sexy, that their bodies are arousing, and from imagining themselves sexually. Although an attractive, desirous male partner is very important to their arousal, they also turn themselves on by focusing on their own sexiness during sexual encounters and even outside of sex. To what extent do you agree with women being their own objects of desire and finding themselves arousing? And what was super interesting was that both men and women endorsed this much more of women than they did of men, because I asked the same question about men, except women thought that men had more erotic self-focus than they were willing to admit to. And, you know, with all of this research, you always have to be a little worried with the cisgender heterosexual men that, you know, you don't have a little homoerotic anxiety creeping in and that they don't want to say that they would sleep with themselves because that might indicate something they don't want to indicate. So we found a very big gender difference in erotic self-focus. Then when we did the bigger study, because we were a little worried that maybe the original questionnaire was a little feminized, 
I talked about lotions and things. And I thought, yeah, you know, maybe we're pulling for that gender difference. And so we redesigned the entire questionnaire, made it a lot longer, did a factor analysis, so on and so forth. And the same thing came out, very large differences. And interestingly and importantly, erotic self-focus was associated with higher sexual function in every dimension of women's sexuality, although not so much for men. The next stop on our journey of fascinating facts is episode 133, where my guest was William Costello. That episode was about the growing number of men who are involuntarily celibate. That is, they want to find sexual and romantic relationships, but for one reason or another, they can't. So what's going on here? Well, it has a lot to do with changes in the modern mating market. Let's listen in. So let's talk more about how changes in the mating market are fueling the rise of the modern incel. Now, historically, men on average have had more wealth and power than women. And so women were generally marrying up, right, if you will. So they were pursuing partners with higher wealth and status than them. But today, women are outpacing men in college degrees. And for full-time workers under 30, the gender wage gap is closing. And in fact, there are a growing number of areas in the U.S. where young women are being paid the same or more than men of the same age. This is not to say that the wage gap doesn't exist. It certainly does. Just that it is getting smaller and in some areas it has closed or actually has shifted in the opposite direction. And what's interesting is that as these changes are unfolding, we're seeing that women are still looking to marry up instead of marry down. And that's really distorting the mating market because you have this growing number of women who are raising their educational and economic standards for their male partners, talking about heterosexual folks here, but a shrinking number of men who can meet those standards. And so that actually makes it harder for everyone to find what they want. And then if you factor in online dating, where you dramatically expand your pool of potential partners and you have the ability to be much more selective, that just amps up the frustration. So on the one hand, you know, there are things to celebrate here, like greater gender equality, or at least we're on the trajectory toward that when it comes to economics. But at the same time, there's that unintended side effect of a dating market where you've got this supply and demand issue. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, where I think it's so interesting as a topic from my point of view, because the incel piece is just a, what I would say is a symptom of a wider mating crisis. And ultimately, you, you kind of summed it up there. It might be an uncomfortable truth for us that for the last number of decades or even longer, that women were maybe or heterosexual women were settling with men that they didn't really want out of strict monogamy norms or strict economic necessity. And now that both of those are kind of eroding, you see maybe a rise in women who would prefer to stay single or to mate up. So like you say, we have a kind of a culturally skewed sex ratio where there are fewer eligible men for women to pick from. And in evolutionary psychology or in mating psychology, whenever you have a skewed sex ratio of whichever sex is in the scarcity, they actually call the shots in terms of the other's sociosexuality. So in any culture or city or university campus where there are fewer men, women actually shift their uh, sociosexuality to being more unrestricted. 
And there's a really cool study uh, by Candace Blake that even was able to geolocate uh, where there's more sexy selfies in these areas where there are fewer eligible men. So she frames it as that women increase the kind of mating competition for those few eligible men. Now, there is some evidence that uh, women are beginning to mate down, so to speak, in terms of these status hierarchies. There's some evidence that women are beginning to marry or mate with men who are less educated or um, less well-off than themselves. However, even the authors of that study talk about how their findings don't speak to women's perceived difficulty in finding a mate. So they, I think some element of women beginning to mate down is intuitive. It makes sense that it's inevitable with women's rapid socioeconomic success. But there are all sorts of unintended consequences alongside that, one of which is a recent study of 21,000 women in 27 European countries found that women who were higher educated or earned more than their partners were more likely to report all types of intimate partner violence. And that's due to kind of that precarious masculinity of when men perceive that they might be at risk of losing their partner, if their partner is spending their time at work around other high status males, those men might pursue what's called a cost-inflicting mate retention strategy, whereby they try to lower their partner's self-esteem or kind of make it really costly for their partner to leave them. So that's a kind of an unintended consequence that we maybe need to grapple with. Another uh, idea to point towards is the role of capitalist kind of giants in driving this um, mating crisis. So Morgan Stanley, the investment bankers, uh, released a report a couple of years ago called The Rise of the She Economy, which talked about how they forecast that by the year 2030, 45% of prime working age women between the ages of 25 and 44 will be single and childless. And, you know, that's the highest in recorded history. It was 41% in 2018. So you can kind of see how when we've shifted towards a brain-based economy that women are doing really well in, uh, that these capitalist kind of giants can have an agenda to say, actually, it doesn't suit us for women to drop out of the workplace when they become mothers. We should actually focus on keeping them single and highlighting that that's the goal that they should strive towards. Now, it doesn't strike me as entirely obvious that single and childless is the goal for most heterosexual women. But I'm kind of libertarian in my sensibilities that I kind of want more freedom for more people. But um, you can kind of see that this uh, cultural drive for women to remain single is kind of happening. And another data point to point towards is an article you shared, actually, Justin. This is where I learned this um, piece of information, that as women have begun to start mating down, increases in female infidelity have increased in lockstep. So while rates of infidelity among men have remained pretty stable over time, they've increased by 40% among women in the last half century. Now, even that 40%, if we take it that that's the case, women's infidelity is still only 70% at the rates of males. So men are still definitely more prone to committing infidelity. But I think it's an interesting kind of way to look at it as you free women up from relying on men, either economically or with strict monogamy norms, there's some data to suggest that their rates of infidelity goes up as well, or that, and that they might be more inclined to commit infidelity when they're with a partner of lower status. So there's all sorts of things going on here. But the mating crisis appears to hurt 
everyone except a few small, the small minority of men at the very top of this status hierarchy. So to give you some data on that, there's some data to suggest that the share of US men younger than 30 reporting having no sex within the last year rose from 8% in 2008 to 28% in 2018. But there's other data to suggest that if you compare 2002, uh, men overall had the same number of sex partners in 2013. But the top 20% of those men had a 25% increase in partners. And the top 5% of those men had a 38% increase, even more dramatic. So it's kind of reverting to this skew of almost like effective polygyny, whereby there's a few men who seem to be kind of monopolizing the attention of a lot of women, that minority that are at the top, given that they're the scarcity, they're reluctant to commit to long-term mating with these women because they're in the minority. They kind of call the shots in terms of the sociosexuality. And then you get a large surplus of men who are kind of disenfranchised. And from an evolutionary point of view, that polygynous mating kind of pattern of one man with multiple women is actually more typical of our evolutionary history. 83% of human societies have been preferentially polygynous. And actually, monogamy developed as a cultural norm in response to this inequality on the mating market getting so extreme when men were able to stockpile resources with the advent of agriculture. Uh, So cultures that practiced monogamy as the main cultural norm flourished because they didn't have this surplus population of troublemaking, disenfranchised young men. So there's all sorts going on in the mating market that perhaps we need to think a little bit more deeply about because unfortunately it seems to be like an unintended consequence of the net good of women's uh, liberation into the workplace. The third stop on our fascinating facts journey takes us to episode 191, where my guest was author Susan Shapiro Barish. I chose this clip as a follow-up to the previous one because it tells us a little bit more about the rise in women's infidelity that William was talking about. In this clip, Susan shares with us how women who have committed infidelity feel about this and also what they were looking for in their affairs. Let's listen in. What have you found in terms of how women feel about their affairs? You know, specifically, how often do you encounter women who say they regret having had an affair versus women who say they're happy that they had one? Most of the women who have come forward to speak with me and share their stories are grateful for the affair. Even those who wouldn't have an affair today but had an affair see it as a self-actualizing experience, as something that taught them a great deal about what they want in a relationship, about how many years they've been immersed in something that seems suboptimal. And about how awake they are now. So that's really what I'm hearing. Yeah, and that's not to say that women never regret or are ashamed or otherwise feel negative emotions about having had an affair, but at least in terms of the women that you've spoken to, most of them seem to report that they're happy that it's something that they did. That's what has always interested me about the women who have come forward to share their stories is the idea that the affair has been a very deliberate, even though it might be unexpected in the beginning, 
but a very deliberate decision and journey that the women say, you know what? I never thought I'd be someone who goes out and has an affair. And then there are some women who say, you know, I was so disappointed in my husband or in how we don't really connect anymore. I, I knew I'd meet someone else, but I wasn't ready to leave or now I'm not ready to leave at all. And the lover is really a tool, a way of understanding yourself and what you have and don't have. Our next stop on this fun journey of fascinating facts is episode 186. This was part of the four-part series I did on the science of porn earlier this year. I spoke with Dr. Joshua Grubbs about his research on moral incongruence and how our religious values shape the way that we think about and interpret our own sexual behaviors, including our porn use. Check it out. So I'm curious about something, which is whether religious people in general are more likely to report problems centering around porn than non-religious people, or if it's just the case that moral incongruence is more likely to be the cause, the root cause of problems for religious people compared to non-religious people. So I think actually the answer to both of those questions is yes, and, and I'll explain. So it depends on where you're asking the question. So I mentioned that study that was conducted in China. There actually was not any association with religion there. But in the U.S. in particular, and in many parts of Europe, some parts of Latin America as well, conservative sexual values, the belief that pornography is morally wrong and religiousness just coincide a ton, right? In the U.S., we know from studies that we've done and various other ones that, that the preponderance of reasons that people think that pornography is wrong boil down to religious values or explicit religious beliefs. And so religious people are more likely to think pornography is wrong and are therefore, when they use it, more likely to experience feelings of addiction to it. And so there's this really fascinating finding. We've shown it across several studies. And I always find this so interesting is that religious people report less porn use and more porn addiction. And that fundamentally, when you're thinking about an actual addiction, does not make sense. You would not expect a group that is using less to have more problems, right? But that's what we see. And it, it does speak to that moral incongruence piece. Yeah, that is a truly fascinating finding. Now, is moral incongruence only relevant when talking about porn, or can people experience this effect in other areas of their sex lives? So, for example, some people who engage in same-sex behavior or have sex outside of marriage might experience a moral conflict about that. So, how does moral incongruence play out beyond the context of porn? It can apply to a range of sexual behaviors. I think it can also apply actually outside of sexual behaviors as well. But we've shown in at least one study with same-sex behavior in particular, looking at men that were having sex with men, if they also thought that it was morally wrong to do that, they were reporting more distress in their life, more depression, more difficulties just in general. But yeah, I think that you know sexual values are typically very deeply held for a lot of people. I mean, I think that especially if you come from a religious background, those types of things, sexuality is ingrained in you as what you should and should not do, right? If you're coming from the conservative traditions in the U.S., heterosexual monogamy within the context of marriage only is the only thing that's allowed. Masturbation, same-sex behavior, pornography use, anything else, anything creative <laughs> at all really has a lot of stigma around it. And when that is kind of ingrained in you from the time that you're prepubescent into adulthood, it's no wonder that if you find that you have non- heterosexual monogamous within the confines of marriage, only sexual desires, fantasies, or behaviors, it creates a bit of issues for you. 
Yeah, absolutely. So although moral incongruence, we talk about it a lot in the context of porn, can really be applied to so many different aspects of our sex lives and also beyond. Our final stop on this fun journey of fascinating facts is episode 174, where I spoke with Dr. Yuthika Girme. We had a two-part conversation on singlehood, including when being single is awesome and when being single sucks. One of the most interesting things that emerged in this conversation was a consistent finding in the literature, which is that older singles tend to be happier about not being in a relationship than younger singles. So why is that? Let's listen in and find out. I'm glad you brought up the point about age because singlehood might very well be experienced very differently at different points in time. I think a lot of us when we were younger didn't really give ourselves a chance to appreciate singlehood Mm -hmm. (laughs) because we felt this pressure like we need to have a date for this event or that event and we need to be in relationships because we feel like we're judged for being single. But then you might get into a long-term relationship, that relationship ends, and then you're like, oh shit, like... (laughs) Being singles is a different thing. And that's, yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about that role of age. And I think it's really interesting. You talk about this in your paper, how what we see in the research is that starting around midlife, singles start to become more satisfied with singlehood. So why is that? Why do you think older singles might be more satisfied than younger singles? I think there's perhaps some sense of like security and maturity that comes and confidence that comes with age, right? And I I don't think that's necessarily specific to singlehood. I think I've seen this happen even with things like people's um, satisfaction with their body. You know, I feel like we're very preoccupied about how we look when we're younger and then you kind of get to a certain age and you're just, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast. Oh yeah, say whatever you want. <laughs> you, but you kind of get to a certain age and you're like, you know what, fuck it. This is what I look like and I'm really really happy and satisfied with that. And I'm going to work with what I've got. So I feel like singlehood, it may for some people be very similar that you get older and you realize, I don't want to conform. Like I don't, if I really don't want to be in a relationship, then I'm not going to like, you know, let people's comments and, and their pressure about that, like bother me. And instead I'm going to get I'm going to work hard to make singlehood like this really rewarding experience. So I'm going to cultivate friendships. I'm going to travel. I'm going to pick up new hobbies and interests and spend my time doing the things that I love in the way that I want to lead my life. I also think that we also see in the in the research that there are people who wanted to be in a relationship. For whatever reason, that didn't happen. And then there's probably like an age in like the 30s where there's like a crisis about that. And then I think they eventually come out the other side thinking, okay, it hasn't happened for me. And maybe if it does, great. Like Kamala Harris, she first got married in her 50s, you know, so she didn't let that stop her. She was out being a badass and I think people kind of get to that with age too. They realize, okay, it hasn't happened for me. Instead of like being concerned about that, let me just be happy with the people in my life that are there and let me live that life to the fullest. And then if someone comes along, then great, but I'm not going to like ruminate about that. I'm not going to like worry too much about that anymore. Yeah. Has me thinking about my own life like (laughs) early on. 
I was not fine being single. And mm-hmm. I think it was because I wasn't fine with myself, you know, had a lot right. of anxieties and insecurities. And, you know, being in a relationship was something that was very important for feeling validated. Mm-hmm. And I've been in a very long-term relationship. I'm not saying anything negative about it or that, you know, if look to leave or anything like that. But I feel like if I were single at this stage of life, I'd be okay. Yeah. Whereas early on in life, I, I wouldn't have been because I just have a greater sense of personal self-worth than I did before. So yeah, I think this age piece is super important when we're talking about singles experiences. I hope you enjoyed this collection of fascinating facts. This was such a fun trip down memory lane for me. Thank you so much for listening and thanks for supporting the show and helping us to get to more than 200 episodes. Here's to the next 200. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.